Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and I'm here today speaking with Jeremy Snyder about his wonderful new book, Exploiting Hope, How the Promise of New Medical Intervention Sustains Us and Makes Us Vulnerable. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Claire. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm trained as a philosopher. I did my graduate work at Georgetown University, focusing on applied ethics. And uh, I'm originally an American, grew up in Kansas and did all my schooling on the East Coast. But uh, for the last 10 years or so, I've been a professor at the uh, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia uh, and our faculty of health sciences. So focusing much more on uh, public health ethics and medical ethics. And how did you come to write Exploiting Hope? So this is something that I've been kind of circling around really since graduate school. So um, for my PhD thesis, I did a project looking at exploitation in general. So um, this is something where I had been originally, even before I got into philosophy, really interested in international affairs and international business and um, and politics at that kind of level, and uh, really in, involved in some political advocacy as well around uh, sweatshop labor, for example, and international inequality. And so they, I found sort of a hope for my PhD thesis where I would um, sort of develop a theory of exploitation. And for that, even I was really inspired by uh, some of the folks I was working with at Georgetown, uh, where we had the opportunity to uh, work with a lot of bioethicists and um, other people. And I um, developed a sort of mentorship relationship there with um, an academic who's working at the National Institutes of Health, uh, also in Washington, D.C., Alan Wertheimer. And he wrote... um, a book on exploitation called Exploitation, which is essentially kind of kicked off uh, a lot of the careers of several academics, uh, sort of examining what that concept meant, but uh, looking at it from the idea of not necessarily kind of the, the old Marxist sense of exploitation, where it's a lot of a particular theory of labor and um, tied up in Marxist economics, but more for some of these particular relationships that you might have that are um, not necessarily coercive um, and even in some cases beneficial, uh, but nonetheless might strike you as unfair or, uh, as he put it, exploitative. And uh, for me, that kind of hooked on to what I was seeing in uh, sweatshop labor where, um, you know, these might be uh, jobs that are Uh, pay better than any of the other options that the people might have. So if you might be coming from a small village in Southeast Asia, um, the existing options are something along the lines of, you know, working your uh, village's farm or your parents' farm for basically subsistence wages, but you actually get uh, a much better life and a much better opportunities by going into sweatshop labor. But I think a lot of people have been trying to articulate why, okay, so that's, that seems better, but maybe not good enough or not so to these people. So I wrote um, a thesis that uh, stood on the shoulders very much of Alan Wertheimer's work on exploitation, but tried to develop my own account of, of what exploitation is. And when I started this new job at Simon Fraser University, uh, I was taking um, a focus much more on um public health ethics and not in a philosophy department anymore uh, and where there are some pressures to 
write more clinical research and get grants and um, have sort of faster turnaround time. So I did a little bit more work with the idea of exploitation, but um, started doing work on very specific topics like medical tourism and uh, health worker migration, these sorts of things. And more recently, uh, in the last couple of years, I've been really interested in uh, the development of unproven medical interventions. So these would be people who sell uh, stem cell treatments that haven't gone through FDA approval yet, uh, oftentimes uh, selling them abroad in you know, Mexico or Panama or where have you that might have looser regulations. Um, and to me, that kind of brought me back to the idea of exploitation, where a lot of times these people are, uh, you know, uh, making a promise that this will lead to better health a lot of times, uh, taking advantage of really vulnerable and desperate people. And it seemed like me an opportunity to both get back to some of those older questions of exploitation, but also uh, by this time, I've been promoted up to full professor. Um, some of the pressures of, you know, um, doing lots of short-term projects were, were off, and I had a chance to kind of reflect on, you know, is there a bigger project I wanted to take on? So it seemed like a really good moment to try to uh, write a book and really get into this idea of what is it about, especially unproven medical treatments, that um, is distinctly exploitative. Well, I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how the book starts, because it does, and reading the book, it does strike me as like, a, uh, a, bio, a, a sort of straight bioethics book, bioethics, you know, rooted in the philosophical tradition. But at the very, the very beginning of the book opens with a few different um, literary and artistic references that sort of, that to me recalled medical or health humanities. Um, so you quote Emily Dickinson, um, you've got a, a lovely image by Gustav Klimt. Um, John, you, you give us an example from John Steinbeck. Can, can you tell us about one of these and, and why you chose to open the book this way? Sure. Yeah. So this comes out of some of the training I got in grad school where um, my thesis advisor, Maggie Little, uh, did a lot of work on this uh, ethical approach called particularism. And the idea of that is just basically that, you know, we can have general ethical rules, but um, there are really limits to how far those can go in telling us how to lead our lives. And a lot of ethics comes down to um, the context that you're in or the particular of the situation. Uh, and that can tell us when, when to follow the rules and when to deviate from them. And when I was being trained and, and working with her and, and, and the folks that she was sort of inspired by, they would often you know, appeal to literature and art and you know, these sort of really rich examples that can provide that context. So instead of, you know, philosophers will do these kind of uh, thought experiments, you know, if you've uh, watched The Good Place or, you know, you've come across these uh, trolley problems. And uh, even in Alan Wertheimer's work, as uh, just referencing, you'll get these really kind of um, unrealistic examples where, you know, deciding whether to murder five people or one person with the trolley is supposed to um, generate lots of ethical truth. And I think there's some value to that. But the idea is that you you miss a lot of how ethics actually works in real life if you don't provide context. So um, by looking at, um, you know, I, I started the book looking at a lot of news articles about how people talk about um, exploiting hope. And the idea of using um, literature here is to try to add some emotional depth and some detail to it. So um, with the image I, I took for the cover, for example, this um, uh, image by Gustav Klimt called Hope 2, uh, it's, it's something I've, it's um, by, by chance uh, owned by the, the National Gallery of Canada. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to see it in person, but it's something I've sort of had seen online many times before, and it really captures it's kind of a, a duality that I'm trying to get at in the book that I want to take seriously the idea that hope is important and valuable um, and wonderful in so many ways. And you see that with the famous um, Emily Dickens, you know, poem as well, you know, that, that hope is, is a thing with wings and, and, and valuable and important. 
But a lot of what's going on with the idea of exploiting hope is it also makes you vulnerable. So in the Klimt painting, it's the, the image of a pregnant woman. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, the, all that promise of the future and, and what may come and, and, and the joy that people often get with the uh, prospect of starting a new family. But um, I think probably a lot of uh, parents will recognize this as well. It's also a really terrifying time. Um, and in the background of the Klimt image, you have uh, a skull and various death heads and monsters. And um, to me, it sort of evoked the idea that, that with the hope um, also comes that uh, vulnerability and that danger to loss. And I, I think that, you know, certainly I've, as a parent, experienced that fear. Uh, I haven't had that loss, fortunately, but uh, uh, certainly with an early pregnancy or uh, when you're just, you know, entangled with a loved one and, and, and open yourself in that kind of way, it, it creates that danger too. Absolutely. And, and so the book is really, um, is organized in a way um, where it's divided into two per- parts. So the first half, you really um, break down what you mean by exploiting hope and how what you mean when you say exploiting hope um, differs from p- uh, other popular and historical accounts. But then the second half um, does provide that detail and that context, um, not in, in and not in the form of thought experiments, but in real life cases um, like participating in phase one clinical trials, some stem cell research, right to try legislation, and um, and crowdfunding. So. Um, so starting at the beginning, what is your definition of exploiting hope and how is it different from maybe the popular or, or common common ways that it, this idea might be thought about? Yeah, so the, the kind of simple version of my account of exploiting hope is that um, it's to take advantage of um, a another person that's who's... Um, hope for the future or, you know, potentiality has been entrusted to us. So the idea of entrustment is really key. So the idea is that when we um, become sort of entangled in a relationship together, um, that I can take on certain um, or, or be entrusted with certain aspects of your well-being or your future. Uh, one way you can react to that is to carry out your duty to, um, look out for that element of the other person's well-being, or at least not take advantage of it. And another approach is to see that as something that is um, entirely for your, uh, is, a, is an opportunity for your own benefit. So it's that, um, do you take advantage of the of that particular vulnerability or not? And how that differs a bit from, I think how, so I, I definitely wanted to stay close to how people, um, use exploiting hope in real life. So I don't think it's very valuable to come up with a theory of something that is internally consistent and uh, viable, but is wildly different from people, how people actually use the word, right? (laughs) Right. So so I I think the trick is to uh, add something, some insight to that um, phenomenon or Kind of behavior that that people have identified in the real world, but be, be able to illuminate it a little bit, not simply repeat it. So, sort of looking at, um, particularly in the press and literature, how people have used that idea of um, exploiting hope, and especially that image of the snake oil salesman or whatever, um, it seemed kind of limited in how uh, typically it's the idea of um, that you're taking an advantage that it's, it is something a um, that rests on a, a lie or a deception or a coercion or something like that. So it is, it is the snake oil salesman where they say, you know, um, this is going to cure your cancer. You know, this is going to make your life better knowing that in fact, it won't do so. And I, I think it's easy to grasp why that's morally problematic because you're lying to another person. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you know, ripping them off in that kind of way. And I, I think that is in fact true in many, many cases of, um, exploiting hope. But what I wanted to do is take that insight um, that uh, Alan Wertheimer had that I was talking about earlier that, in fact, in a lot of cases of what we call exploitation, it's not necessarily that you're just um, lying to somebody or 
um, coercing them or, or what have you, but that this, um, uh, this um, moral wrongdoing can take place in a context where uh, everybody is open-eyed about it, or at least it's not the intention of the exploiter to, um, uh, to lie to the other person or, or, or rip them off in this kind of way. So the idea of not doing what you ought to do uh, in light of the um, entrustment relationship that um, you've been given um, a responsibility to protect the other person in some sense, that goes beyond it a little bit. So one way you can do that, sure, is by lying to them, by just uh, taking advantage of them. But other times it's just to not go far enough to actually look after them and, and help them out. And I think that was also seen in some of the um, examples I saw in the press. So when I talk about a little bit, this isn't a um, medical case, but um, you'd often see the idea of exploiting the hope of migrants, that these um, people who were um, shuttling uh, economic migrants to Europe uh, would sometimes abandon them or put them on unsafe ships or what have you. And those are cases where they weren't lying to them necessarily, but um, they were taking advantage of this desperation to leave their own um, uh, countries and uh, to get safe and not doing enough to actually, that once you enter into that relationship with something, somebody, you owe them a duty of protection uh, that they weren't uh, fulfilling in those cases. So the book makes the point that... Um exploitation can actually, and this is a kind of a counterintuitive argument, that it can be voluntary and mutually beneficial. Um, How is that possible? Right. So a lot depends on um, how you're reading the idea of being voluntary. So um, it's, it's not to mean that it's purely without pressures or what have you, but I'll I'll go back to the sweatshop example to um, illustrate this and maybe talk about a few other examples. So in the case of somebody who um, really, really wants to work at a sweatshop uh, because they don't have any other better example uh, opportunities or, you know, Wertheimer gives the example of um, somebody who is um, in a sinking ship and is very, very happy to see somebody show up who can rescue them. Um, you, you're faced with a choice in those kind of cases. You can drive a hard bargain where you can get whatever you can out of the other person, you know, essentially, you know, sort of holding them hostage to their situation, or you can go a little bit beyond that. But um, there's a sense in which we want to, you know, the, the idea is that those kind of relationships are voluntary in that, um, if I'm the employer in a clothing factory in Bangladesh, um, employing people for the absolute bare minimum, um, I didn't put them in that situation. Uh, they might be fighting for those jobs and, and really happy to get them and have gone to a lot of trouble leaving their home village to move to the bigger city where they can have those jobs because it's a lot better than subsistence wages uh, back home and with the, the promise of famine and, and flood and what have you. So um, in, in that sort of sense, those relationships are voluntary. Um, they have a lot of limitations to them, but you want to take, but the idea is to take seriously the idea that's, it, it does uh, meaningfully demonstrate what the individual wants, that they are showing some agency there to say, look, you know, these are the, the range of options before me and I, I'm going to try to improve my life as much as I can given the kind of structural limitations. So some people will take that and say, well, look, I mean, then there's nothing wrong with sweatshop labor or anything where there's a deal where somebody's not holding a gun to your head or threatening to make you worse off. And that's not quite right. Um, We can say certainly that more is owed to that individual. And in the case of sweatshop labor, I think that we can take seriously the idea that there's something structurally flawed where people do have that range of choices, either uh, possibly starve to death or take this really, really low paying job and dangerous working conditions for long hours where you're barely able to eke by. Um, 
that uh, we owe more to individuals than that. So that's essentially what Wertheimer um, tried to offer up in his theory of exploitation. He would say that um, the problem here is one of fairness, that when, um, in the example of the um, sinking ship, if I come up to rescue you and say, you know, normally I would charge um, $100 to tow a Sink a, a, a foundering boat out, but because I see you're really, really desperate, I'll only do it for ten thousand uh, dollars. That that's something unfair about that. That you're asking, you're taking special advantage of that situation to gain much more than you usually would. And so, um, his sort of general approach is to say that um, exploitation is is a um, example of unfairness. And where I differ from that quite a bit is to say. Um, as I said earlier, it's really about um, that that entrustment relationship that you're um, taking advantage of um, somebody who is essentially under your protection or is particularly vulnerable to you. And sometimes fairness gives a good uh, sense of what they're doing wrong. But more generally, it's um, something about the particular relationship and how those relationships really color it. Um, but in both cases, it's taking seriously the idea that um, it, it's you know, it is what the person wants and it is something that's valuable to them. But at the same time, um, even in those situations uh, where the person being made better off and uh, is expressing really real agency there, um, you can do something wrong with that. You can press your advantage too hard. And that's at the heart of exploitation. And, and so how does exploitation then, does it relate to structural injustice? Or how does it relate to structural injustice? Um, so, yeah. So I, I think it definitely does. Um, sort of a, my preferred count of exploitation. It's not something I get into the book in a great deal of detail. I, I do have a chapter on exploitation where I sort of pick apart these different notions. Um, for the most part, I'm, I'm really looking at those one-on-one relationships between the exploiter and the exploitee. Um, and so it's much more about how that individual presses the advantage. But um, what I think is that these are, are really tangled up. So um, sometimes it's a structural injustice that gives the person the um, possibility of pressing that advantage or gives them a lot more power in the relationship than they might have otherwise. Uh, so it can be structural economic inequalities that give somebody a lot more power over another person. Uh, it can be, um, you know, more social uh, and structural inequalities where maybe because of race or gender, um, or even because of, uh, um, the kinds of roles that people have that give them more power than they would in a fully just world, that that's what gives them the power, you know, to, to press, uh, an advantage on another person or, uh, to receive a lot of benefit from them. So yeah, they're definitely tangled up. I do I do usually try to keep them a little bit separate in that um, I think that, you know, these are different. If, if I'm an individual, I can ask separate questions about, okay, what should I do in this situation? And then, you know, for this other individual, and then what does that mean for me as a, a citizen of a country or of a world to try to make um, the starting conditions a more just place? So in, in the example of the, if I'm an employer uh, in a sweatshop, uh, I can ask, okay, how much should I pay my employees? But I'm kind of hemmed in by an economic system where I still have to be able to make a profit and keep my business going. So then there are separate questions around um, structural exploitation about what I should do to try to address those structures. So I think they raise different questions, but they're very clearly interrelated in that they um, have a lot to uh, shape the kind of relationships we have as individuals. So I'd like to shift from talking about exploitation to talking about the hope. Um, you argue that there is, um, there's a rational component to hope. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what ways is, is hope primarily emotional or maybe even fantastical, right? Like rooted in the imagination or in fantasy. And then in what ways, um, in what ways is hope rational? Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed 
about this project was um, I had done a lot of work on um, unproven medical treatments and on theories of exploitation, but I hadn't really dug into theories of hope before. So when I was looking at that, I was relying a lot on the work of others, particularly uh, Adrian Martin and uh, Katie Stockdale to a lesser extent, and sort of um, not trying to come up with my own account of hope necessarily, but uh, to integrate the work that other people have done into um, this account of exploiting hope that I was trying to develop. But essentially, the idea is that, um, you know, at its very bare minimum, hope is just sort of having an optimistic attitude towards something that could happen in the future. And, you know, it can be an entirely rational um, and even beneficial attitude to take because, you know, hope does a great deal of good for us. And, and this is kind of the duality I was trying to get at with the the Klimt image and the example of, you know, from Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck, um, of, of people migrating to the West Coast during the uh, the Dust Bowl. And, and this idea is um, that, that hope is a wonderful thing. It gives you optimism. Uh, there's a lot of ep- ep- uh, evidence, actually, in the medical context, um, people who have been given um, either a terminal diagnosis or even, you know, been told that they have a very serious uh, medical condition, having hope for the future is um, a little bit self-fulfilling in the sense that it can reduce stress and um, uh, make people more likely to follow medical advice and keep trying to um, improve their health. It has that sustaining value that actually makes it more likely that they will uh, survive or have a longer life or higher quality of life. So hope can be really, really good for you in that sense. Um, just emotionally, but also just it has a biological function for us. Um, I think, you know, uh, so many people are struggling right now in, in this awful year that we're in the middle of in 2020 and uh, having hope for the future uh, I know for me is, is really important that this is going to end, that, you know, the, the political environment might change, that the um, vaccines will hopefully come out. And uh, having that engagement with the future is important. And the, the emotional aspect of that is that, you know, th- and this is something I really borrow from Adrian Martin, is that, you know, it's, it's not just a, a cold calculating. Uh, I think that there's a 80% chance I'll get a COVID-19 vaccine next summer. And I really hope that happens. But it's to, you know, to, to have the full force of it, it's a lot of imagining what that future is going to look like and um, having that uh, emotional feedback loop. And, you know, for me, for example, you know, it's sure I, I, I've started to think, okay, when, when can I get this vaccine? What's that going to look like? And for me, I, I naturally get into the space of imagining going to visit my family in the States and, you know, to, to see them and to, to hug my niece and nephew and my sister and, you know, all this sort of things. And uh, it's, it's to say again that it's, uh, it's uh, really, yeah, you're, you're engaged with a particular scenario and a particular future and what that feels like and um, what, what that's going to look like. And that, that really speaks to why it can be so good for us. Is there a difference um, between genuine hope and false hope? Or did they work basically the same way? No, I think they're really quite different. Um, I I don't think that you can always um, cleanly separate the two. But, you know, broadly speaking, false hope is going to be where you, uh, you know, the, the, the... most straightforward example of that are um, what I think a lot of people mean by exploiting hope, where people simply have a misunderstanding of what the likelihood of, of that hope for a future is. So if, for example, um, I uh, hope that I'll get vaccinated in the next month, and I think there's a 90% chance of that happening uh, because I, I heard a news story or read a, you know, a Facebook meme about that. Uh, that's just wrong. That's that's simply not true. So I'm basing that hope on something else. Or 
and the sort of examples I take a look at the in the book, you know, if I um, in reality have uh, pretty much a, 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 a terminal disease that there's no prospect of um, surviving past three months for, uh, but I, I hope that um, there will be, because I've been told that um, there's actually a 50% chance that I'll be cured by this uh, thing I can buy off the internet. Um, so I'm basing that hope off of a, a deep misunderstanding of the, the actual chances or in some cases, you might think that there's something special about you or your context that makes it more likely that, um, you know, you're a fighter, uh, that you can beat the odds or whatever, and you, you genuinely believe that. So um, you can certainly hope for um, this imagined future where you, you might genuinely understand that it's incredibly unlikely there's a 5% chance but you find value in hoping for it anyway. Uh, and that'd be an example that you're not necessarily misconstruing what the odds are. You haven't been lied to. You're not lying to yourself. Um, you really do understand it's a 5% chance, but you still find value in um, imagining what that would look like if you hit the lottery in that kind of case. Uh, and, and that for me would be an example of genuine hope where um, there's a sense in which, you know, imagining yourself in that position is, a little bit misleading and that's incredibly unlikely, but, um, but you're going to go for it anyway, because you, you find that really sustaining, um, and, uh, it gives you a, a, a brighter outlook. Um, and that's very different from somebody who just, just misunderstands or has been lied to about how likely that is to come about. Sure. Um, let's, let's move into talking a little bit about some of the, your the, the, your specific cases and how these concepts kind of play out um, in those cases. How did you um, how did you select the the cases that you chose? Yeah, so these were um, you know most superficially these were drawn from uh, kinds of areas I've been doing some research in uh, anyway. Um, I had done some work um, in my thesis on. Uh, clinical research, and I, I've been very interested in stem cells, um, for example, and uh, and most recently I've been doing some work on uh, crowdfunding as well. So they were areas I was certainly familiar with and and prepared to talk about. But for me, the specific chapters each do um, some specific work and understanding the idea of exploiting hope. So uh, the first of the applied chapters is on clinical research um, in a couple of contexts. So very early stage, stage one um, cancer research, where um, essentially you have cancer researchers who are just trying to establish what the maximum safe dose of a new uh, potential therapy is. And there's very little to no likelihood of it actually being effective at that stage. They're really just trying to find out if it's safe or not. And there's been a, a good deal of evidence that um, that there's a, a danger for a lot of false hope there in that um, people with a terminal cancer diagnosis might um, misconstrue that as something potentially therapeutic rather than uh, at the very, very early stages of research. Um, and the other area in that context I look at is um, later stage trials that are being done in um uh, poorer communities where there's very little chance for them to actually get access to the treatment. So the uh, primary example of that would be um, HIV vaccine research that's being conducted in countries where it's very probable that uh, they wouldn't get any uh, early access to that uh, just because of the, their health systems being very underfunded. So those are areas I've worked in before, but for me, it really gets at it becomes a good illustration of um, the entrustment piece that I was trying to um, push for in terms of understanding exploitation, where it really comes down to the role. So in, in a lot of cases in uh, clinical research, there's a lot of confusion between, is this researcher my doctor? Are they here to take care of me? Or are they uh, a researcher where they're trying to create generalizable knowledge where they're trying to say, okay, this is an effective treatment that then can help many other people, though maybe not this particular research 
participant. And if I am working with you as your patient, that's a very specific role and a very kind of specific kind of trust where my physician needs to be looking out for my welfare specifically. But if they're there as a researcher, um, then it's a very different role. And um, the vulnerability is very, very different there. So it really gets, again, down to the idea that the context of the relationship matters a lot. So, so that was really the purpose of that chapter. Um, if you go to the next one, looking at um, unproven stem cell treatments, as an example, uh, that's one where then it's less the specific relationship, but more um, the economic system that we have and the, uh, the way that we provide uh, medical treatments. So this is more of your classic case of the snake oil salesman where there have been a lot of people selling um, purported stem cell treatments as, as there always are with any new treatment. And, and around COVID-19 as well, we've seen a lot of these around hydroxychloroquine and um, all, so, some of the new treatments that have turned out to be, it seems like effective, but also some of the ones that haven't been, uh, that you get really big promises for that. And um, so in the stem cell area, you have these clinics all over the place in the US, but also internationally that um, have found some loopholes and FDA regulations where they kind of sell these products and make big promises about them that really aren't backed up by the science. And that's an example of less a specific role, but where you have a specific um, regulatory system or um, a market-based system that creates that opportunity to create hope and then take advantage of it. And that's a little bit closer to the idea of structural exploitation where if we had a different um, regulatory system, uh, then that opportunity for exploiting hope would be much less, um, that, they, that they're, they're taking advantage of those loopholes. Uh, yeah. What about the right to try legislation? Sure. So that turned out to be, um, uh, so that when I was originally working on, it was just something I'd seen in the air a little bit. It seemed really interesting. My interest was particularly around, um, then how political systems can allow for exploitation, uh, and, and the role of the politician in particular. So if you're not familiar with right to try, that was a law that was passed in, uh, 2018 and signed by president Trump who um, essentially it, it weakens the FDA a little bit to um, uh, purportedly allow faster access to unproven uh, medical devices and drugs. But uh, in reality, it, it doesn't change the system too much. And um, it, it seems like hasn't actually um, given more than a couple of people uh, access to, to these experimental treatments. Um, and in practice, you know, when he was on the campaign trail, I didn't know this was going to happen at the time, but it turned out to be a big, um, well, at the time that the right to try, uh, law was signed, Trump was arguing that it would save hundreds of thousands of lives, which anybody who was familiar with it knew that that was incredibly unlikely to be true. And so that was sort of my starting off point to see how, um, a political system, but also, you know, the, the role of politician can lead to exploiting hope. Um, but uh, it turned out with um, to be sort of a, a plank in his uh, electoral campaign later on. And even with COVID-19, you would see, um, you know, trying to speed along access to experimental treatments being a, a really big issue. So it, it turned out to have a lot of um, grip there as well. And the last example is um, is crowdfunding, and that is something that has always made me look kind of unsettled. Like, like I've I've, I've always it, it is there's always seemed to me to be something sort of deeply wrong with having to have your medical bills paid for by strangers you don't know on social media, but. Um, but I, I I'm not sure I I I would have had the vocabulary to call it exploitive. So could you talk a little bit about um, about the last example of crowdfunding and, and how that fits in? Sure. 
Yeah, that's one I, I really struggled with quite a bit because I, I think I, I wanted to be really careful about how I framed that. Is that something where I thought that the crown funders themselves were exploiting the hope of other people or was it something else? And I, I definitely settled on the, the something else and I'll, I'll say what that <laughs> is. But um, but yeah, it's it's a tough thing because yeah, you do read these. I've so that's an area of research I've gotten into more in the last couple of years, and I've read thousands of these campaigns and in, in the medical area, and they're absolutely heartbreaking. And I, I find it really emotionally difficult to, you know, I definitely have to pace myself, and I uh, caution my students to really, when they're working on this area as well, to to kind of take breaks as well, because there are people who are in absolutely devastating situations, you know, faced with the choices whether to um, you know, get the medicines they need or make the payments on their house. And, you know, people are, are suffering as well. And, you know, I, I definitely want to take that very seriously. And in, in the specific area of unproven treatments, these are often people who have been, you know, um, told that they are very, very sick and possibly dying. And they don't want to accept that. So they're looking around for anything to help themselves out. And so generally when I look at that, it's not that the um, individual who's crowdfunding for say an unproven stem cell treatment or, you know, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of people with stage four cancer um, who are, who have been told, you know, there's nothing we can do for you, but they don't want to accept that. They, they have that hope for a miraculous recovery. And so they're looking around for some new fad diet or a stem cell treatment or, um, homeopathy or, or something that'll um, get them a longer life or maybe even cure that cancer. And so the the primary source of exploitation there is, is much more what, 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 what we saw in the stem cell treatments, where somebody who is um, intentionally lying or exaggerating, or maybe they're a true believer, but, but they're essentially putting a product out there that is based on a lie about how much they're going to be um, working. And in the crowdfunding, um, it's not that the um, people running the campaigns are, are trying to lie to the would-be donors um, or are even exploiting those donors, but they're becoming a central node in kind of a network of exploitation. So they sit between the donors and the people selling these products, and they amplify the, the volume of, the, of those appeals um, they oftentimes exaggerate. So because the people selling these cancer cures, for example, might be legally on the hook for any claims they make, you know, they often rely on testimonials and kind of winks and, you know, uh, vague language. Uh, but what you see in the crowdfunding campaigns is that they don't, that they, you know, take that to the next level where they make those um, implicit promises about efficacy explicit. Or, you know, they just kind of make up numbers or whatever. Um, again, not intentionally that they're trying to mislead their donors necessarily, but because they're placed in a situation where they need to convince people to give them money and that they've already sort of been drawn into this. So th the point of that chapter is much more to say, you know, we can get locked into these systems where um, it, it is a little bit more complex than simply a exploiter-exploited kind of relationship, but you can have people who are intermediaries there. And social um, social networks are a good example of how uh, those can actually uh, create larger networks of, of people who are drawn into that relationship of exploitation. What strategies can we use to to prevent the exploitation of hope or respond to it? I think it really does depend on. And this is where it goes back to the particular or the context that really does depend on um, what is going on or what the, um, the the kind of exploitation of hope is is taking place. Um, when you have these networks of hope, like in crowdfunding, I think that, uh, and, and I talk about this in the book, and I've done this in my other writing, there are particular things that crowdfunding platforms could do to uh, flag campaigns that are misleading uh, or if they're for particular um, kinds of treatments or clinics that have been shown to be um, 
uh, spouting off a lot of misinformation. Um, so there could be particular roles for people who are sort of central to that. And, and then there are a lot of fantastic uh, scientists and academics who work on misinformation in the medical realm who have a, a big role in that too. Uh, around our politicians, you know, we can do more about making sure we subscribe to to newspapers and, you know, and, and people who do all these fact checks, you've definitely seen that around some of the, the lies of politicians in the, the most recent U.S. election. And you see that up here in Canada as well. I think that kind of fact checking is essential. And, and again, trying to do more work on um, improving the quality of news and information that people get um, around uh, the stem cell treatments and, and all that. I think there are things that regulators like Health Canada and the FDA can do to uh, make it harder for people to um, misrepresent um, information and to, to actually sell these products directly. So, you know, knowing the sort of structural elements in these specific areas uh, that allow people to be bad actors, I think is, is really important and that there are specific steps that can be taken. But I think there's also a limit to that. So, you know, for me, it's, it's essentially that um, people have this entrustment with the, the welfare of others and they, they choose to take advantage of it. Um, we can try to change structures and regulations to give people fewer, you know, bad actors, fewer chances to do that. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're always going to have that trust. And, and it's a good thing. You know, hope is a good thing in many cases. And um, having people that we rely on is, is central to, to human life. So there's no way to regulate away or to um, make the, the potential for exploiting hope or exploiting anything else impossible. Um, it's more an issue of, you know, can we try to protect people where there are these really big vulnerabilities, but at the end of the day, you know, we have to rely on people to do the right thing. Is, is there any difference between exploiting hope in relation to help and exploiting hope in relation to other areas like sweatshop labor, for example? I, um, when I was doing my postdoc, I taught a class called Quackery in Medical History. And the, the medical students... Um, where they where they kind of came down on quackery was like, well, if there is no treatment, if there is no viable option, then there's there's nothing wrong with whatever you you can give people that gives them hope. So, um, it, you know, so in a in a sense, like quackery was only really quackery if it was competing with some form of of cure or treatment that had. So that was had been proven effective, but if there was no viable treatment, then people could were sort of like should have the autonomy to do whatever, you know. Um, so anyway, so what what do you think about is 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 there something unique about health in the in the, in this case in the case of exploiting hope, um, and what makes the, those instances in in the your case studies different from say. Um, sweatshop labor, other forms of exploitation. Yeah, I think it. I think it's definitely distinctive in that health is it's it's distinctively embodied, um, and especially the the kinds of cases I was looking at were much more at that. You know, people with uh, severe health needs, often a terminal medical di- diagnosis, where they've been told that there's nothing that mainstream medicine can do for them. Um, you know, that's a situation where there's a potential cutoff to your entire, you know, it's not a how comfortable will my life be, um, who will I fall in love with, or, you know, will I, you know, or, or how will my life go? But it's more the question about how much longer do I have to live and will that be a life entirely of pain and um, decline or can I stave that off a little bit? Um, and, and often with these kind of... Um, terminal diagnoses, it colors every relationship you have, but also just um, it's it's can be hard to avoid if you're uh, going to be spending the rest of your life in pain or um, you know, hooked up to medical devices or what have you. So I think that that's um, very distinctive. And also that trust relationship is very distinctive in that we're often putting nearly every element of our 
life in the hands of another person. And so there's a lot of potential for exploitation there. Um, that said, I mean, it's, it's of a kind, um, you know, that the account I give is, is uh, placing our, our welfare in the hands of another. And, and we do that many walks of our life. Um, and the, the non-medical cases that I talk about are, are things, you know, and, and how people have talked about exploiting hope in newspaper articles and that sort of thing include things like, um, you know, putting your hands in the, um, your, your life in the hands of a human smuggler. And, um, and there it, it, it's also life and death, but also your, your life prospects in a very deep way. So it's not, you know, necessarily worlds apart there. And then there are some more trivial cases, like, you know, somebody who thinks that they're going to be the next great author and they say they, you know, and, and have a, a sparkling literary career and they, they put their hands in the, uh, their hopes in the hands of a kind of um, literary agent who's going to lead them on. Um, it's a little bit more trivial, but it's deeply felt by the individual and, and does have a lot of uh, possibilities for exploitation. So I think in the medical case, it's really just about that you know, the depth of that and the, the centrality to um, the person's life is what's really at hand there. And, and to your students, I would say, you know, um, yeah, I, I get the, the, the reaction that quackery could seem to be harmless in some cases, but I think a lot of one, the one cases I look in the book, um, you know, these are people who are being um, led along. They're wasting a lot of money. They're wasting other people's money. Um, they're losing the opportunity for palliative care. Um, or to you know have quality time with their friends and family. So I definitely think even in, in these kind of cases, just beyond the um, you know any sense of uh, what's distinctively wrong about exploitation, it, it can have some pretty significant harms for the people who are being exploited. I think that comes across in the book for sure. Um, well. Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time. I I wondered if you could tell us what you're working on now. I'm trying to work now. It's it's definitely a, a struggle lately with uh, uh, the pandemic and uh, kids who are on and off of school and, and all the stresses mm-hmm. of life and trying to be a, uh, a, a distant uh, professor with students that you don't get to be in the same room for. But um, definitely in the um, early days of the pandemic, I was doing a lot of work just trying to distill some of the ideas from the book into the context of COVID-19. But um, to the future, I'm, I, I am continuing to be really interested in this idea of crowdfunding, and uh, I, I'm kind of building up to hopefully writing a book on that, looking at um, how this is a, um, how it changes the, the idea of giving and uh, is uh, really puts some of the problems with giving relationships on overdrive around um, justice and privacy and um, uh, some of the problems with uh, even explaining hope for, for unproven treatments I talked about in the book, but how, how that's a kind of distinctive practice I think we need to be uh, deeply concerned about. Well, Jeremy, that sounds like a really great project. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about exploiting hope. Sure thing, Claire. Thanks for having me on. 